invite you to turn to uh, Jeremiah chapter 42, aligned with the reading for this week, Jeremiah 42. We are back into the narrative of Jeremiah now, but uh, to get us current, let's do some recap. Because last week we took a detour from the narrative, and in some sort of way we address some more transcendent ideas in Jeremiah. And I described it like going up on the mountain to encounter God and come to know who God is as he reveals himself in some of those um, grand chapters through especially chapter 31. Let's come back to the narrative. We're coming down from the mountain, and much like Moses did, (laughs) what he finds when he comes back down is not, not good. But there, there's some, some rays of hope, but they are short-lived, unfortunately. Okay, here's the recap. From two weeks back, the, where we had seen the events uh, leading up through chapter 41, what we were seeing was the aftermath of all the calamity that God had brought on Judah and Jerusalem at the hand of God. And... This leaves behind just what's left, and a mess, and a scattered group of people with some leadership, but not good leadership. And here's what this looked like after uh, Jerusalem was overthrown, and Babylon, all of all of this, uh, those um, Chaldeans withdraw, and Gedaliah is appointed the governor over this province, over what's left. But he's murdered, you probably remember, at the hand of Ishmael, appointed by the king of Ammon. He didn't heed the warning, and so he was killed, and evidently this was intended by the Ammonites to be disruptive. And then on top of that, they, um, the Ammonites carry off the sons of Israel, um, intending for probably captivity, slavery, all those things, these ones that are left. At the hand of Johanan... Uh, the son of Korea, they are actually delivered before they get too far from home. And he becomes a bit of a leader for them. But when we left them, they were in a holding pattern. They hadn't really landed in all of their intentions with everything they intended to do. But in chapter 41, verses 17 and 18... Um, We see where they are, and it reveals what they have in mind. So, reading this, it says, They went and stayed in Gareth Chimham, which is beside Bethlehem, in order to proceed into Egypt. This is what they have in mind. And um, what, what on earth would inspire them to do that? Here they are, left in the land, and now you would think, now we're undisturbed. Um, We've had all of the things that we've seen, and then even some aftermath and some unsettled, what is the, it's, things are just not settled, not, there's not stability is really what I'm trying to say. And, but what, so what, what is the inspiration for them to bail and go to Egypt? Um, It's revealed here in verse 18, that last verse of chapter 41, 
They want to proceed into Egypt because of the Chaldeans, for they were afraid of them since Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, had struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, whom the king of Babylon had appointed over the land. So they have seen firsthand what Nebuchadnezzar is capable of, the force and the brutality and the retaliation that he's capable of, and they, he certainly can't be pleased with this turn of events, and I think they just don't want to be around to see what he might do um, as, as a reaction to, to Gedaliah being killed. And it says they were afraid, and their fear is driving their decision-making at this point. We'll see this very plainly. And this cannot lead to a good end. I'd say probably never leads to a good end. And this brings us to the narrative of chapter 42. And in this, it begins really in the most hopeful and optimistic vein you could even conceive um, they are seeking the counsel of the Lord through Jeremiah. Let's do some reading. So, in 42 verse 1, all the people, small and great, approach Jeremiah, and they say to him, please, let our petition come before you, and pray for us to the Lord your God, that is, for all this remnant, because we are left but a few out of many, as your own eyes now see us. That, here's what we have in mind, that the Lord your God may tell us the way in which we should walk and the thing that we should do. Wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Did you ever think you would hear this from their lips? I don't know if I find it significant that twice in this, they say, we want you to address the Lord, the Lord your God. Evidently, they had the conception, probably, that Jeremiah was in a little bit closer connection to the Lord, and probably had good reason to suspect this. Later, they will acknowledge that it is, yes, the Lord our God, and when we, um, if we listen to him, he will be the Lord our God. But twice here, they're saying, the Lord your God. Again, I don't know if, to, if I need to make anything of that or not. But I do find it very uplifting, at least to hear these words. And so verse 4, Jeremiah to them, as the you'll see him seeking to be the perfect prophet. This is a pretty good description. If you need a perfect prophet, what he would look like. Jeremiah the prophet said to them, I've heard you. Behold, I'm going to pray to the Lord your God in accordance with your words. And it will come about that the whole message which the Lord will answer you, I will tell you. I will not keep back a word from you. You'll remember a king had said, I want you to tell me everything. Don't leave out a word. As though Jeremiah would leave out a word. No, this is his way. When the Lord speaks... Every word, all the way back to chapter 1, the word which I give you, you shall speak. You shall not fear them, and all of these things will be said. Nothing is omitted of all of the whole counsel of the Lord. And so then in verse 5 and 6, their response to this, they're, they're pleased evidently to hear that Jeremiah will 
give them the word of the Lord. They said to Jeremiah, and this is very bold, may the Lord be a, a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act in accordance with the whole message with, with which the Lord your God will send you to us. And they add, they, they know that this message can take different forms, can be in different veins, and in verse 6, whether it is pleasant or unpleasant. We don't have itching ears. We're willing to listen to whatever God's word really truly is. Whether it is pleasant or unpleasant, we will listen to the voice of the Lord our God to whom we are sending you in order that it may go well with us when we listen to the voice of the Lord our God. There's a lot to say about this. The first thing I think and consider is you wonder what Jeremiah's sort of internal reaction we hear what he has to say, but you really wonder what his internal and sort of immediate reaction is when he hears these things. Um, you wonder, and you'd like to think that he's, the first thing he thinks is, this is everything I had hoped I would hear from the people all along. And finally, I'm hearing it. This is anything that any speaker for God would want to hear from a collective of God's people, that they're willing to listen, they intend to obey, they intend to hear it all, tell us what it is, and we're going to act in accordance with it. So on the one hand, you'd like to say that, you know, he, he's uh, hopeful when he hears this and, and excited and glad for this. On the other hand, I have to wonder if Jeremiah at this point has become too cynical to put much stock in their words until at least they've demonstrated a commitment to um, pair those words with action as James would say, show me, <laughs> show me that you mean what you have to say. In either case, if you have people <laughs> that want to hear the word of the Lord, make it known to them. Notice the phrase in this uh, that they recognize at the end of verse 6. We will listen in order that it may go well with us when we listen to the voice of the Lord our God. If you recall, we've brought this up a, a time or two, um, intentionally a time or two, <laughs> repeatedly a time or two. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 29, God's in, desire all along. Oh, that they had such a heart in them, that they would fear me and keep my commandments always, that it may be well with them and their sons forever. Have we finally found the ones that would have a heart to hear and to keep it? It seems so hopeful. Their words reveal at least a couple different things. Um... They seem to understand the gravity of this, that God is going to be against them if they don't obey his will. That's, you call that the outcome of disobedience. It says, God be a faithful and true witness against us. Um, he, is, he can't, he, he'll, he'll be against them um, on account of disobedience. And they understand the outcome of obedience in that word. If we obey it will go well with us because we've listened to the voice of the Lord our God. 
What a simple principle, right? What a simple principle. <clears throat> the fact is there's little difficulty in uh, grasping uh, the principle therein. Very little difficulty in understanding those things, right? There's, a, I would say, probably at least a little bit of friction in acting accordingly, in carrying it out. That demands obedience. That's a demand. That's, that requires us to put our faith in gear. And now we're making a move on what we, are, what we acknowledge and what anybody with any reason whatsoever can acknowledge, that it will go well with us if we obey and otherwise you know. There is one area where there is a great deal of difficulty, and these ones will illustrate it for us. And this is not the only place we'll see this in Scripture. There is great difficulty in not being deceived about our commitment to doing what we know and acknowledge. And isn't that always the, the real rub? Isn't that always it? So let's see that. Um, I notice very interestingly, as we go into this in, in verse 7, there's a waiting period. Ten days go, pass before God gives his word to them. Um, what's, what is this? Uh, is it a test, perhaps? Um, the, the first thing that came to my mind, and we'll see if we're all on the same wavelength here, when Samuel didn't come to Saul in the appointed time, at least what Saul thought should be the, the correct arrival time, timely manner, he forged on ahead. He acted foolishly, acted wickedly. Do you remember that account? He said, Samuel's not here to offer the sacrifice, and we need to know. We need to know what God has to say. <laughs> If God is going to be with us or not, it's a very similar situation here. And God is putting them on pause and making them wait to hear his word. Uh, it's the don't just stand there, do something mentality. To their credit, I don't see them in necessarily acting in haste. But after 10 words, or 10 days, let's try that again, the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord. So in verse 9, what will God have to say to them? Jeremiah said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you've sent me to present your petition before him. You asked for this. Verse 10, If you will indeed stay in this land, then I will build you up and not tear you down. I will plant you and not uproot you, for I shall relent concerning the calamity that I've inflicted upon you. Starting from the last few statements there, after everything we've seen, God is still intending to show compassion to these people. Amazing. In the, and it's in the very familiar metaphor that we've seen throughout. It's building and planting. I have been breaking down. I have been uprooting. It says, if you obey one simple command. And how familiar that concept is. If you will obey the simple, simple commands 
then God has in mind everything that is good to bless, uh, to bless you in that. And um, whereas the message before, year, uh, years back, had been this, had been in chapter 7 at the temple speech, amend your ways, he would say. It says, obey and you may stay in the land. Chapter, uh, Jeremiah 7, verse 3, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. So before it was obey and you may stay. Now, interestingly, the message is stay and I'm going to let you stay. Um, and that's what we see here. So in verse 10, if you will indeed stay in this land, he says, I will build you up, not tear down. I will plant you and not uproot you. For I shall relent concerning the calamity that I have inflicted on you. And uh, so that is stay. Stay put in the land. That's, what, that's my word to you now. And to see the outcome of that, not only is it a relenting, but in verse 12, I will show you compassion so that, you will, um, so that he will have compassion on you and restore you to your own soil. See it? If you stay put, you're going to be restored to this land that I intended you to have all along and that you're intending to go away from. I will restore you to your own soil. Um, uh, these words remind me of what Jesus had said to Jerusalem. If only you had known um, in this day, even you, the things that would make for your peace. And I hear those same words right here. If you will listen, you will know the things that will make for your peace. But Jesus said to them, and Jeremiah is going to say to these, but they've been hidden from your eyes. It's not something God did, not something anyone else, it's their own. Well, let's not give away the deception um, that is there. God had predicted, interestingly enough, back in Jeremiah chapter 17, you may recall, Verse 4, you will, he says, I know this, I know what you're going to do. You will, even of yourselves, this is of your own choice, you will let go of the inheritance that I gave you. And now Jeremiah is saying, if you'll stay put, um, you'll have that inheritance. There's a but coming in verse 13, however. But in Jeremiah 17, uh, you will let go of the inheritance even of yourself, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know, for you've kindled a fire in my anger which will burn forever. This was played out once when they chose to ignore the commands of God, and it was kind of, that part's, you know, their will, but it's kind of against their will that they're going away to a foreign land. But this, very direct, like very, almost like carefully, they are going to choose it's like we could, we're, we're at ease here. There's nothing pressuring us. We could settle down and enjoy the good land that God has given us. But they are choosing to let go of that. So don't miss that in all of this. The giving up of what God had given. But yes, um, God intends to do these good, do this good, and relent concerning the calamity that he had inflicted. So God is the one who relents. 
we've made that very plain. Jeremiah 18 says, I might speak about a nation at any point. And if they uh, turn away from what the, all the evil that they're doing, I will relent. If they're doing, doing well and I say, I'm going to build you up and plant you, um, and yet you do otherwise, I'm going to relent concerning the good that I intend on you. And he can do that kind of ahead of time. That's like before the judgment comes. And interestingly enough, and that, by the way, that would be Jonah. So Jonah was complaining at God because he knew who God was. And that's Jonah 4 verse 2. He says, I knew, I know that you are the God that, who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abundant in, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Even God's worst prophet. <laughs> Most successful, but worst prophet. Um, knew that God would relent. Name a more successful prophet sometime. I challenge you, in fact. If you've seen any prophet that's converted an entire pagan city. Jonah knew. And Jeremiah is making this known for, for God. The God who relents. But God is definitely not indifferent to their choice. And he never has been. It's the please obey. And why would you die? And all of these statements trying to reason with them saying, you know what would make things to go well for you. Why would you choose to do anything other than that? And that will just, the rest of the, our reading will just be thick with that idea. Absolutely. Um, verse 11, he, under, he addresses the underlying fear motivation in this. Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, whom you are now fearing. Do not be afraid of him, declares the Lord, for I am with you to save you and deliver you from his hand. For people who trust in the Lord, they can be confident that he will deliver. Timeless principle. It's, a, it's principle central to Jeremiah. You remember chapter 17? Blessed is the man, and you tell me, blessed is the man who... Who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. In contrast to the man who is cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength. So what about it? What will these ones do? Will they trust in the Lord? Don't fear the king of Babylon if you trust in the Lord. Well, uh, the alternative is given... Um, in verse 13, there's the, the other side of the if. If you do this, it's the blessing because you've shown your trust in me. Otherwise, it's the curse because you are putting your trust in mankind. But if you are going to say, we will not stay in this land, so as not to listen to the voice of the Lord your God, saying, no, but we're going to go into the land of Egypt where we will not see war or hear the sound of a trumpet or hunger for bread. We will stay there. By the way, we need to hang on to those things because hunger and um, so the sound of a trumpet and this war associated with you know, conflict, um, all of those things, this is what they're trying to avoid. Unfortunately, if you are trying to flee from those things, determine, absolutely determined to go to Egypt, 
Verse 15, it says, If you really set your mind to enter Egypt and to go and reside there, then it will come about that the sword which you are afraid of will overtake you in the land of Egypt. The famine about which you're anxious will follow closely after you in Egypt, and you will die there. No survivors from the calamity that he had planned to bring on them. Um, and verse 18 is really what reveals that God is not really indifferent about your choice. Take it or leave it. You can have this or have that. God is, has, well, verse 18 says, he'll be angry if they do this. Thus says the Lord God of um, Israel, as my anger and wrath have been poured out on Jerusalem, so my wrath will be poured out on you when you enter Egypt. Already the, the, tech, the, the verbs of the, the uh, words here are showing God's knowledge of the intents of their heart. When you enter Egypt. And so, verse 19. Listen to the force and the, the power in God's words. The Lord has spoken to you. He has spoken. The Lord has spoken to you, O remnant of Judah. Do not go into Egypt. You should clearly understand that today. I have testified against you. God has made his will plain. Let's get to God has made his will entirely plain to them. The extent to which we listen and obey will determine how God will deal with us, whether he will be against us or whether he will bless. It does a second thing. It, it reveals, if, if we go back to the beginning of this chapter, and the, their words against now their actions that we're beginning to see take shape, even before they've done it, God knows, before we know, it reveals whether or not we have a true commitment to our intention to do God's will, everything that God will have to say, or whether it's we're in self-deception. But chapter 42, verse 19 here, paraphrased, everything I've said to you is sufficient for you to know what the will of God is. Do not go into Egypt. We probably could have developed some things around sort of the symbolism and the, uh, the theme in the people's tendency at so many times in their history to want to go back to Egypt. And at different times, there, was, there were different motivations for that. Um, but a lot of times it was this, it, it really was in a self-deception. Did they really, had they, or, or just a forgetfulness or something, because in the wilderness, oh, that we had, we're back in Egypt with all the pots of meat. We're, we're concerned about famine out here in the wilderness. Well, this is the same thing. It's the same thing. They're going back to Egypt. Oh, we, it, was so, it was so well with us when we were in Egypt crying out to God in our um, absolutely oppressive slavery. It's, it's a deception. There's no other way of, of thinking about that. Going back to Egypt has associations in Scripture of idolatry and the things that God was trying to remove them from. 
And he had removed them from the idolatrous land, but you know what they always say about that. You take them out of the idolatry, but you can't take the idolatry out of the people, right? And there's always in Scripture an association when you talk about going back to Egypt, an association with this slavery or captivity um, that they had known. And how, how could you seek to go back to that? And that's, that's true at any juncture. In the, another motivation that you've seen from time to time, and for instance in Isaiah, and I, let's see if we're getting ahead of ourselves. I've actually forgotten, to be honest with you, where I intended to bring this up. Isaiah will uh, point to their tendency to go to Egypt because of the military might, and that was about what did they have in Egypt that was, would be helpful for military contracts? What is it? Chariots, horses, right? So, the, yeah, the tanks of the ancient world. Um, if only we had the armaments that Egypt could provide. That's all we'll really say about that, but certainly a lot could be said. Okay. Verse 20. Surely such sincere-sounding declarations at the beginning of commitment to obedience couldn't come from people who didn't sincerely mean it, surely, right? Well, here's the heart. Verse 20, you have only deceived yourselves. He says, I know what you're going to do, and you've only deceived yourselves, for it is you who sent me to the Lord your God, saying, pray for us, and whatever the Lord your God says, we will do it. So I've told you today, but you have not obeyed, the Lord your God, even in whatever he sent me to tell you, that's probably referring to the past, but I guess it's probably also referring to what he knows they're going to do now. You haven't obeyed. You're, you already have one foot out the door. You're on the, you're on the edge, ready to depart. You've not obeyed. Verse 22, therefore you should now clearly understand that you will die by the sword, by famine, by pestilence in the place where you wish to go to reside. Surely this wasn't, you know, an insincere, you know, commitment to doing what God had said and their own, own words. No, it wasn't. It wasn't insincere. It was, dece it was deceived. It was, it was deception. That's what it is. Take warning, God's people, all God's people, um, of the deception for people who are sincere. We see it around us. That's easy to see. Let's not find it among us. It, all of this recalls the words of Exodus 34. The people have been given the new law and the covenant. They are probably energized by this. They've encountered God at the mountain once again. All the people answered with one voice when Moses said, this is, here's, here's God's law and here's your, here's your covenant. They all answered with one voice and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And uh, we will be obedient. Is it the same words? How did it turn out at that occasion? How many days was it? How many, maybe, yeah. Few short days. Was it, was it 40 days at that point that he was on the mountain? All that to say, it was short-lived. 
And here again, this short-lived, go, go sin t- and, and God will tell you and he, you'll tell us and we're going to do everything that you have commanded. We will listen to you and we will do. And 10 days later, chapter 43 comes about and you'll see that they do not. But Jeremiah makes it crystal clear that they are rushing headlong into disaster there in verse 22. Uh, there's twice he's saying, you will clearly understand that God is against you if you do this, and you will clearly understand that you will die. Who rushes headlong into this kind of disaster? So what will their response be? It looks like this, summarizing chapter uh, 43. What can you say to this? The only thing really you can say, there's, there's no uh, response that you could make to this except to just deny it. And so they say, it's a lie. Uh, that's verse 2. And they say in verse 3, it's a conspiracy. You don't have our best interest at heart, and neither does Baruch. We, we've turned against him too. It's a conspiracy. And verse 3 reveals that they are still gripped by their fear. They're not putting their trust in God. Trust God. No, we're, we're not. Um, he's going to give us over into the hand of the Chaldeans, and they're going to put us to death, or else exile us to Babylon. And so... In verse 4, um, in this very satisfying sounding but very hard to read phrase, they didn't obey. So Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces, and all the people. So this is everybody. Wholesale response, and you know, just everybody's in line with this. All the people, they did not obey the voice of the Lord so as to stay in the land of Judah. They did not Obey so as to stay. Um, and so it'll say, it'll describe that all the people, it's almost making them um, infamous in their just rejection of God. Gives their names. And in verse 7, if we didn't understand that they did not stay and that they left, this is humorous, little helpful phrase inserted in verse 7, they entered into the land of Egypt, and in mine has in parentheses, for they did not obey the voice of the Lord. Thank you, uh, Baruch, or whoever was actually pinning this. Um, yeah, we got that. They didn't obey. They didn't listen. Um, and so twice it says they didn't obey so as to stay in the land. To be honest with you, I, I think the flavor of this, though, if, if you read a second time, they entered the land of Egypt, for they did not obey the voice of the Lord. It's almost as though the writer of this is saying, after all of this resource, you're the reader now, after everything you just read, can you even believe? They went to Egypt. They didn't listen. And so... They would see everything the Lord would, um, that he said he would show them. In verse 8 and following, there's symbolism in some, what I only can describe as vandalism. Uh, this is, at least this is as close to vandalism as you'll see Jeremiah get. Uh, tell me how this works. In verse 9, take some stones. Here we are with another object lesson. Take some stones in your hand and hide them in the mortar of the brick terrace. Now, unless this is 
under construction. The only way you hide something in mortar is by chipping it away or, you know, removing it. And so therefore possibly vandalism, but maybe it is ahead of time. And this man is building a new porch, a grand porch. And your stones are going to be part of a permanent, uh, it's a permanent fixture on this man's um, lounge area. Um, what does it mean? What, what is with these stones? Verse 10, this is what God is saying. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I'm going to send and get Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and I'm going to set his throne right over these stones that I have hidden, and he will spread his canopy over them, and I will also come and strike the land of Egypt. Those who are meant for death didn't escape it. You're going to have death there too. Those for captivity and those for the sword. And he would show that he's visiting them also for their idolatry. And some of their great places and grand places would be torn down as a response to even their idolatry against God. Can you imagine, uh, you know, Main Street? This is, this is a poor representation, but maybe it's a judicial building. What's the most significant building? The courthouse. Maybe we're pouring the new um, courtyard for the courthouse. And it's not, the concrete's not yet set and somebody goes and with their finger, judgment is coming to this place. <laughs> and it becomes a permanent fixture at that place as a sign. That's, that's kind of what's going on here, a sign against them. Well, let's see if we can hurry and do something with chapter 44, unless you want to say something about this. Yes, go for it. I think, it, I mean, really, this is a, the mm -hmm. same problem that, that Naaman had, right? He's given a command. You're given a command, and you have in your head an idea of what you expect the command to be or the difficulty you expect it to be, and the people set out with the same request, right? Give us, tell us what we need to do. And in our head, we have an idea of what that's going to be, oh, yeah. and in our head, we think it's going to be go to Egypt. And it may be hard, and it may be difficult, but we're willing to do that. Mm -hmm. And then the challenge comes in in not the difficulty of the task, but the difficulty of getting oh, yeah. over yourself, right. right? Overcoming yourself and your own expectations mm -hmm. and your own ideas and throwing that all aside and doing what God says. And, you know, Naaman struggled, or, yeah, Naaman struggled with that, right? He had to have a slave girl let him know how to do it, right? But uh, but even the some of the apostles struggled with that too, right? You have you have uh, Peter trying to cut off the ear of you know the head of the high priest's servant. This will never to, happen to you, right? Yeah, and it's never going to happen. I'm never going to let this happen. And yet he had to overcome his own ideas and his own belief and just do what the Lord said. Yeah. Yeah, and it's you almost hear a little bit of what, what their words say are. Yes, we're listening to whatever you have to say, but what they, their words really hide a bit of this, Micaiah, please come and let your words be favorable, just like all the other false prophets we've heard from. Please let your words be favorable. And under those circumstances, we'll hear and we're going to obey. Um, and yeah, it's, what do we expect? Are we really committed to the idea that we're going to do what God has um, said? Or have we deceived ourselves? That's, that's the whole thing. Anything else? Thanks. Chapter 44. Um, we're back in chapter 3 again. Because what you see here is 
that they're going to be doing a great harm to themselves. The, the, in, in verse 2, he says, You saw, you saw what I did to Jerusalem. And don't miss the fact in this that it was because of idolatry. Okay. You saw what I did to Jerusalem. I sent you my word by my prophets, verse 4. Don't do these things that I hate. Verse 5, you did not listen to me. Verse 6, I did not spare you. And verse 7, now then, thus says the Lord, uh, take all that in mind and let's think together. Now then, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, why are you doing great harm to yourselves? So as to cut off from you man and woman, child and infant from among Judah, leaving yourselves without remnant, provoking me to anger with the work of your hands. Why? Why? Idolatry. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the idolatry. They're so committed to their idols. And this has been a cause of their deception too, which we'll see here in just a moment. Why are you doing this great harm to yourself? The real answer is, it's like a rhetorical question. Like, there's no good answer to that question. Um, based on everything that they've seen and that they've known. And what it, he's asking them is, first of all, in verse 7, have you learned nothing from everything you witnessed and experienced yourselves? Or is it in verse 9, is it like, what other explanation could there be? There's not a, not a good one, but tenuous, but have you forgotten? Verse 9, have you forgotten the wickedness of your fathers, the wickedness of the kings of Judah, the wickedness of their wives, your own wickedness, the wickedness of your own wives, which they've committed in the land of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? You forgot that that's why I brought the disaster, or you just didn't learn. What is it? Um... Uh, you can't make a good explanation for this. Um, and so I said, it's chapter 3 all over again. Okay, what was chapter 3? The treacherous sister Judah. You remember? Israel. You saw, Judah, you saw what Israel did. Your next door neighbors. Idolatry. You saw what I did to Israel. They're your next door neighbors. You saw the the unmarked van come up, beat, break down the door, and carry these people off never to be seen again. You saw it. How did that not make an impression on you? They didn't fear. That's, isn't that the problem? I think that's the problem here as well. They didn't fear, and they went to the same sin all over again. Um, <clears throat> so, Verse 10 reveals that it, it really is a heart problem. Um, a, pro, a heart that is properly tuned would, would be more like what you see here. They have not become contrite, even to this day, nor have they feared. Yeah, so I, I said it's the fear. Uh, um, here it is. And they haven't become contrite. They had no remorse for the sin that they had done. Nor have they walked in my law or my statutes which I've set before them or and their fathers. Now, they don't see it that way. 
In fact, in uh, verse 15, they have what they think is a pretty good justification for their idolatry. Okay, what is their current situation? We've talked about this before. The current situation, it's so hard to get us to <laughs> divorce that. It's like, if we're being blessed, well, God must be, um, you know, very pleased with us. We're being cursed. You know, what? that must mean something as well. <laughs> But in verse you know, 15 and following, they're justifying their idolatry by saying, you know what? We're not going to quit this because we remember back when we were giving all these offerings to the queen of heaven, oh, we had plenty of food, we were well off, we saw no misfortune, all of these things. I needed to chart this out really, and I, I, I should have done that. Okay, so let's, let's think about these three things. Let's see if you can hold three things in your mind with one minute left. They were, had plenty of food, they were well off, and they saw no misfortune. And um, <clears throat> in verse 17, I have to read this. We are going to be burning the sacrifices of the Queen of Heaven, pouring out libations to her, just as we, our forefathers, all the others did. For then we had plenty of food, we were well off, and saw no misfortune. They know... <laughs> That when you obey God, it goes well with you. Well, no, we're going to obey this, the queen of heaven. And when we did that, it was well with us. And at the end, um, well, no, so, so Jeremiah responds to this. It's a very direct response. He will say, you saw good because of God. The blessing you saw was because of God. And oh, suddenly you didn't have any food. You think God forgot all of your idolatry? No, that was his response to your unfaithfulness. And so, you saw the good, you were well off when you were, because of God. You had food, but you offered your food to idols and rejected God, so there's that part. And, you, and they say, well, we saw no misfortune. And he'll say, well, you saw misfortune and calamity because of God, once again. At the end of this, they are so committed to their idolatry. Je Jeremiah will say, you've made your vows. Go, go ahead. You, you probably need to go ahead and fulfill your vows. Go headlong. Balaam, go on. <laughs> You're committed to going. Go on. It's not license, but um, he, they are sent to do that. But just know that you've severed yourself from me. And then the summary at the very end of this chapter, I think I can do in about 10 seconds. Um, God will say, I'm watching over them for harm and not for good. And as ever... He says, I'm watching over my word to perform it. And he will say, I have spoken. Okay, thanks everybody. We better put it, put it to rest now.